Good morning. Good morning. And let's begin with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your love and truth, and we thank you so much for Jesus. We ask that your spirit will join us this morning, lighten our minds, draw our hearts together with your kingdom, and let us be effective in sharing your message with the world at this time. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing Lesson 11 in the uh, Quarterly Isaiah, and the title is Waging War. And for those who don't have the the quarterly, I don't know if you can see the picture. There's a picture here at the top, and and the picture at the top is uh, there's the Christian flag, and there's soldiers going forward. They're carrying spears, uh, and it's called Waging Love. Did I say war? It's Waging Love is what it's called, Waging Love, not Waging War, Waging Love. But, But the picture... Uh, looks like uh, like they're going to war. I don't know if you noticed that, that picture. That's why I, I was looking at the picture, thinking of the title, Waging Love. And when you look at the picture, what comes to mind? Isn't it kind of typical war? There's like soldiers with spears. Did you notice that the spear tips are in the shape of a heart? Yes. Yes. Did you all notice that? So we're going to war uh, with, with spears that we form in the shape of hearts to kill you. That'll make all the difference, won't it? We love you as we kill you. Can we win people to love by threatening to kill them if they don't love us? Yeah, how, how much of that has been attempted in history? How much of that is still taught in Christianity? Is the war of love waged by violence, coercion, force, or compulsion of any kind? It is not. But the Bible does say we're in a war. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, for though we live in the world, we don't wage war, war as the world does. The weapons we use are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments, pretensions, set us up against the knowledge of God, take captive every thought. Notice, though, we do not wage war as the world does. What are the weapons of the world? If you haven't been following our blogs, I'm in the middle of a six-part series. Part two came out Thursday. And the six-part series are the powers of Satan. The six powers of Satan. Power one, which was last week, was the power. And these are the weapons, the weapons of the world. I want you to understand all the weapons of the world. They're the powers of Satan. The weapon, first weapon, lies. We don't use lies. We defeat lies with the sword of truth. The kingdoms of this world with their imposed laws. That's the blog that went up Thursday. Imposed laws, coercive pressure, force, compelling. We don't do that. We don't coerce. We live in harmony with design laws. We, we present truth and love. We leave people free. That's what we do. That's how we wage war. That's not how the world does it. The world's going to get their political party in power, and they're going to make new laws, and they're going to punish you if you don't keep their, their moral laws. See what's happening right now. Watch. If your eyes are open, it's quite destructive what's happening. But other way the world wages war, world's economics. What's it say about the beastly system? No one can buy or sell, save him who has the mark. Economic warfare. We don't wage economic warfare. We don't wage class warfare. We seek to uplift those in poverty, not wage warfare economically on people. Accusations. You know there's a war of accusations? If you don't know that, you haven't ever seen a political campaign. It's accusations flying constantly. That's what they do. They wage accusation wars. And just just read the headlines across any headline. Constant accusations. Satan is the, the Satan, the Satan, is the accuser. We don't make accusations. We don't accuse. We don't tempt. 
Satan tempts and Satan divides. He's a divider. We don't tempt and we don't divide. We bring everything by the principles of God and Jesus Christ. We bring things unto one head, into unity, the unity of love and trust. And the last, of course, weapon and the last power in the way the world wages war, death and destruction. Death and destruction. We don't do that either. If you think about this waging of the war business that we're in, do other texts come to mind? Because we are in a war, and we do have weapons we wield. I'm going to read this to you out of the remedy. It's uh, Matthew 10, 34 through 39. Matthew 10, 34 through 39. Don't, this is Jesus speaking. Don't think that I've come to make peace with a selfish world. I have not come to bring peace with selfishness, I, but a sword to cut selfishness out of the hearts of people. I have come to cut dysfunctional family ties, to free a son from the selfish loyalty to his father's ambitions and feuds, to sever a daughter from the control of an oppressive and manipulative mother, to cut through the fear and hostility a daughter-in-law has towards her mother-in-law. A person's worst enemies are often members of their own family. Those who love parental approval more than they love me are untrustworthy of me, and the remedy I bring. And those who love approval of their children more than me are untrustworthy of me and the remedy I bring. Anyone who refuses to die to selfishness and follow me, loving others more than self, cannot be trusted by me to distribute the remedy I bring. Whoever seeks to save self remains infected with selfishness and will die of their unhealed condition. But whoever surrenders self and love to me will experience healing of heart and will find eternal life. There's a war. But where is the war fought? And so we don't use the weapons of the world. Our weapons have divine power, demolish strongholds, arguments, pretensions, set stuff up against the knowledge of God and take captive. It's in the mind and the heart. That's the war. First paragraph in the Sabbath lesson says, A Jewish cantor, which is a worship leader, and his wife, who lived in Lincoln, Nebraska, began receiving threatening and obscene phone calls. They discovered the calls came from the leader of the American hate group, the Ku Klux Klan. Knowing his identity, they could have turned him into police, but they decided on a more radical approach. When they learned that he was crippled, they showed up at his door with dinner. He was utterly flabbergasted. He, his hatred melted before their love. The couple kept visiting him, and the friendship grew, and even... Uh, even he even thought of becoming Jewish. Nice story. Will this work in every situation and circumstance? Not even close. For the heart and mind of the one who acts like the cantor, yes. If you love others and love your enemies, you will grow in God's love. So it will always work for those who pro apply the principles in their heart. Always. It's unavoidable. Will it always work for the enemies of love to be one to love? Well, just look at Jesus. Did all of his enemies come to love him because he loved them? No, it does not always work to win all the hearts that are against us. But it always works to grow the hearts who practice it. It's an important distinction. Because when you love others, if your focus is on Changing the other, that's my goal. I've got to get them to change. And it doesn't work, then you might be, why did I even bother? Why did I even try? 
Well, you're not ultimately trying primarily to manipulate another person. You're trying because it's the right thing in governance of you to do. That's why you love others. Sunday's lesson points us to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55.1 reads, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you that have no money, come, buy, and eat. Does this remind you of any other texts? Come and buy, eat with no money. Come buy and eat with no money. Any text in the New Testament come to mind? John 6. John 6 says... Jesus is the living bread that comes down from heaven. Okay, the living bread that comes down from heaven. It's offered to us. I don't remember saying buying it. Does he buy there? Maybe not buy. Yeah. And it's free. That's right. It's free. And that is what we are buying. I'm thinking particularly of the message to Laodicea mm-hmm. in Revelation chapter 3, 17 and 18. You say I'm rich and have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Therefore, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white robes to clothe, clothe you and keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Let's examine these two texts, the Isaiah and the Revelation, and look at the various elements described in the two texts because I think they really are speaking about the same thing. There's a need, thirst, or nakedness, or poverty, or blindness, or wretchedness. There's a need, but there's a failure to understand the situation. And then there's water, gold, white robes, ISAV, money which we don't have, and instructions to buy with money we don't have all these things that we need. What do the various elements represent? I've got a quote here from the commentary Desire of Ages, page 280. It says, uh, after quoting what I just read to you out of Revelation three seventeen and 18, it says, faith and love are the gold tried in the fire. Faith and love are the gold tried in the fire. But with many, the gold has become dim and the rich treasure has been lost. The righteousness of Christ to them as a robe unworn, a fountain untouched. So the water represents... The water of life, the water of life, which to a nomadic people living in arid conditions is a very powerful illustration because water really is life there. But it's not about the physical water. It's about what it represents. And my view of the water of life is the living connection with God that we have. The living connection God's life-giving presence indwelling and filling us is the water of life. And the more of it we drink of that relational presence of the Holy Spirit living in us, it wells up in us. And we have more love and more joy and more health and more truth and more discernment and more of the things of God that we, that flows out from us to others. And the more of it we give away, the more of it we receive. Originating God's throne. That's right. The rivers of water and fire. That's right. Gold represents trust slash faith, faith and love. That's the gold that we receive from God. White robes, righteousness of Christ, which is reproduced in us. I salve, discernment, 
The Holy Spirit is giving us enlightenment, discernment. But that, that discernment of the ISAV is developed by practice. The Holy Spirit is spirit of truth and love, but then we have to participate and embrace, appreciate, apply the truth, think it through, reason for ourselves, not just memorize a Bible verse. There's plenty of people who can recite Bible verses that have no idea what they mean. We're more than tape recorders who can parrot back a verse. Discernment is comprehension, wisdom. This requires exercise of our abilities in a surrendered love relationship with God. And then money, which we don't have and which is not actually needed to purchase, but we're told to use it, we're told to buy without the money. How do we purchase faith, love, a righteous character, and eternal life? How do we purchase these things, a relationship with God? How do we purchase these things? Well, the second paragraph in Sunday's lesson says, However, if you add the words, as Isaiah did, without money and without price, the point becomes clearer. Isaiah appeals to people to accept forgiveness freely. Yet the word buy emphasizes that what God offers people to meet their needs and desires is valuable. So receiving is required, uh, receiving it requires a transaction, a, a transfer of something of worth. God freely offers forgiveness within the framework of a restored covenant relationship with his people, but not because it was free for him. He bought it at a terrible blood-drenched price of his own servant. Though free, it came at an astonishing cost to himself. What do you think of that? Is that all clear to you now? Does God buy our salvation? Does he purchase it? But that was what was just said. He, he purchased it. Our forgiveness required payment. Is our salvation purchased forgiveness? Yes. I, I kind of relate to that when you buy a gift for someone that's very expensive and you don't tell them the cost, but you want them to really appreciate it. Okay. Um, God's giving us a very expensive gift. Okay, so he's using an expression that's not really true. He's not actually purchasing or buying, and you're aware. He's just giving. He purchases. From who? Who does he purchase from? Who's, who's the shopkeeper that he's, he's making his payment to? Okay, the metaphor doesn't work. Because understand, this metaphor, it is metaphorical, and it does work if you're in the right law lens. Yeah, if you're in the wrong law lens, which the world and traditional Christianity is, and you're in the human law lens of imposers or the human economic systems of buying and selling, it does not work. It completely falls apart. And it make, and, and it's, but it's taught this way anyway. And how is it taught? Well, Jesus had to pay his blood. Where is it paid? Well, it's paid in heaven. It's paid at the, at the heavenly registry of our sin debt in the books that he pays it there. The penalty has to be paid. Somebody had to pay it. We couldn't pay it. He loved it. We had to pay it. And does he pay to? He either pays to his father, who is the ultimate supreme judge, or he pays it to the law, which has to be maintained. It's all fraudulent. It's not true. It's corrupt. It's the wine of Babylon. It's the human false systems of imperial law that require infliction of punishment. 
And yet it costs the Godhead a dear price. Oh, no question about it. That's the human lawless system. If we... And when we try to explain God's kingdom through this lens of Satan's system, we end up perverting the truth this way. And this is what's happening. And this is why God seeks to break our mind from the systems of buying and selling. He seeks to break our mind. How? How does he do it? By telling us to buy without money. Buy without money. As soon as you think, oh, I'm going to go to the store and I'm going to buy. I'm going to purchase with no money. So immediately your mind goes, wait a second. That's not how, my, how the system works. I can't, I can't operate in the world systems by buying without money. That's not how it works. And so he's telling us, he's using the metaphor not to actually affirm the buying and selling systems, but to actually break us out of the buying and selling systems. That it doesn't work this way. It's design law. We must buy without money. And so, and that is the entire point of using these things. Buy the gold for me. Okay? Think that through. I'm going to buy gold. <laughs> With what? Well, the purchase price or the ransom price is what's necessary to free us from bondage, the bondage of sin. What is it that actually holds us in the bondage of sin? Through the lie that God's law functions like human law, it's taught that we're held in the bondage of sin by the law's legal condemnation and the impending death penalty that a righteous judge is required by the law to enforce upon us. And thus we all sit on death row waiting for the execution of that punishment upon us. That's what holds us. We have to, in order to be free, we have to be, as the lesson, forgiven. Pardoned. Someone has to pay the legal price. Jesus came. All the sins are put on him. He was executed by his father in our place. And thus, the payment, the legal price is made. If you accept it, it gets put in your registry to heaven, and then you can be pardoned, and Jesus paid the price for your sin. In this model, who's the, who's the source of death? God's the source of death. Who's the one who killed Christ in this model? He's dead. God. Okay. I mean, he's completely untrustworthy. In every way you cut it, it corrupts the entire government of God, makes it function like human government. Arbitrary rules made up require external enforcement. God's the inspector of death. This one we need to be protected from. It's all false. It's the wine of Babylon. It's imperial. What's the truth? What actually holds us in sin? Two things hold us in sin. The lies we believe about God so that we don't trust him. Jesus is the word made flesh, the way, the truth, and the light. The truth will set you free from the lies. So first, we had to have the truth revealed to us that destroys the lies that hold us in bondage and keeps us from trusting God. But we needed something more than that. Even when we see the truth, we have another problem. What's our problem? We have a carnal nature. That's exactly right. We have a nature that, that is fearful and self-centered and survival-driven. Our nature is corrupt. We need a new nature. We need both. The price that sets us free is the truth to win us to trust and a new sinless human nature. This is a threefold process to free us. First, it required Christ to become actually human and to, as a human being, live a sinless life, be tempted in every way just like we are, confront those temptations externally from the devil, internally from human emotions in Gethsemane and at the cross, and the pain of the body's pull on him as he's being tormented and tortured. And, and, and when those 
temptations are availing him to, with his human abilities, resist those temptations and love perfectly, thus establishing in his humanity a new humanity, destroying the old nature he assumed through Mary and rising again on the third day in a perfected humanity. He becomes the second head of humanity, the second Adam, cleansing humanity from sin. First part one. Part two, for all those who trust him, we receive a new heart and right spirit. The Holy Spirit takes the victories of Christ, reproduces it in us, so it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We receive the character of Christ as the Holy Spirit enlightens our mind and convicts us of sin. And as we then, we then choose to accept, not create, accept and follow and apply the Holy Spirit in powers. And we develop Christ-like character within us through the reception of the victory of Christ applied by the Holy Spirit. Our characters are transformed. That's part two. Third part, at the second coming, we become partakers of the divine nature, an immortal nature, a nature that will never die. Christ shares his immortal life with all of those who partake and trust him and receive a new heart and right spirit. This is what we receive through Christ. This is the ransom price. This is the high price that he paid. And who was it paid to? To you and to me. We needed the truth. God didn't need some truth to enlighten him so he could figure out what's going on. We needed truth. We were deceived. Who needed a new sinless character and nature? We did. God didn't need it either. We did. We couldn't develop it. We couldn't uh, uh, expose the lies. We couldn't reveal the truth about God. Christ came to give us what we needed to fix what Adam did to this creation. So there was a high price, there's no question. It was never a legal price, and it was never a human economic price. It was the price, the condition itself required to fix what was broken in us. In the same way, a parent who donates a kidney to a child in renal failure pays a price. It's not a legal price. It's not a purchase price. It's not an economic price. It is a price the condition requires. That's design law. We can only get to the truth when we reject the human systems of imposed rules and, 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 and artificial economics. Then we can see the truth of what God is doing because he is the creator and he's restoring us to his original design and creation. Now, what about this question of forgiveness? The lesson says God couldn't forgive us without this p- payment that he made. God forgives all freely. Be, be very clear on this. Every being is forgiven by God. Satan is forgiven by God. Forgiveness was never an obstacle. If you want some evidence for that, look at the cross. Christ forgave them freely. Freely forgave. They're not saved. Forgiveness by God was never an obstacle. His personal pardon was not an obstacle. Our receiving and responding to his grace, his love, his forgiveness, that was the problem. But God forgiving, never the problem. And God's personal pardon, understand, because it wasn't the problem, his granting it and giving it doesn't fix the problem. For God so loved the world that he gave his son to fix the problem. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God was in the son, reconciling the Lord. Understand, God's forgiveness 
is evidenced in his sending Jesus. His forgiveness doesn't fix it. Jesus fixes it. And then the Spirit applying in our lives what Jesus achieved fixes it. This other thing, trying to get a payment made to God so God will be legally enabled and, and somehow uh, 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 adjusted in his attitude or whatever way you frame it, to get God to change in some way to forgive us is corrupt. It's pagan. Without the truth as revealed by Jesus, we would not believe God freely forgives. In fact, even with the evidence that Jesus has given in the Bible, billions still don't. And they teach that Jesus had to die to pay a penalty so the Father would forgive. They still teach the corruption. We're going to see in just a few moments, we get down to the rest of Isaiah 55, where Isaiah 55 actually says, he freely pardons. He freely forgives. There was never a price necessary for that, but he couldn't fix it without Christ's achievement. Do you remember, when you understand this idea of who gets the payment made, the payment metaphors, water, wine, bread, flesh, blood, these are metaphors. Where did Christ, you mentioned John 6. I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink the blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day, for my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Where is Jesus making the payment? Where is he applying it? Where is he making the deposit of blood and flesh? In us. We're the ones he's paying to. Do you see? It's straightforward. And when he said it in his day, it's straight to them. How was their response? Praise the Lord for that. They wanted to stone him. And what happens when we teach today that Jesus' payment is made to us, not to the Father? What do the theologians do today? You're a heretic. Get out of here. Because the same lies about God are the lies that Satan's been telling from the beginning, has infected human race since the beginning, and they're so appealing to us because they fit our worldly systems. We love, this, we love Satan's view of God. The penal legal view. We love it. We teach it. We write books on it. We support it. And we oppose anybody who tries to expose it as a lie. There's another text come in mind uh, about the idea of being thirsty and in need of water. Yes, the woman at the well. Now think of this woman at the well. When she's thirsty, Christ offers her water that she'll never get thirsty again from, right? Okay? Did she have to buy it? I tricked you all. You should know I throw out trick questions. Was there a transaction? Did she have, yes, there was. The water of life was freely offered, yet she still had to purchase it with something other than money. What was the transaction? Maybe I could put it to you this way. The water of life could not be consumed by her until she did something first. What? What did she have to do in order to start drinking the water of life? Open her heart. All these things are true. What was in the way of doing that? Fear was definitely in the way. Fear was in the way, for sure. There you go. And what did the fears cause her to do? She was lying. She was obscuring. She wasn't being truthful with herself about herself. 
She couldn't partake the, the words of life, the words of truth, the water of life, until she stopped lying and admitted her condition. That's what she had to do. And as soon as she did, it was hers to take. But as long as we're lying to ourselves, I got this, I can handle it, no worries, I can do it. Hey, as long, I, I, know, I, I discovered the right day of the, of the week, that's the Sabbath, I'm going to go to church, I got it now, I got it. You know what? I was baptized by sprinkling. I, I'm going to get baptized by immersion. I got it. I got it. And on the list goes. So God offers us a transaction. He tells us purchase, buy, but without money. And I want you to understand it's an exchange. We exchange that which we value most which is ourselves. That's what we exchange. We surrender self. So we exchange our lies for his truth. We exchange blindness for discernment. We exchange foolishness for wisdom. Fear and selfishness for love and trust. We exchange pride for humility. We exchange guilt and shame for Peace and honor. We exchange evil for righteousness. We exchange poverty of soul for the richness of Christ-like character. We exchange war for peace. We become peacemakers. We exchange division and conflict for unity and harmony. We exchange imposed law for design law. We exchange human governments that coerce with the government of our creator God who leaves us free. We exchange soul sickness for spiritual health. And ultimately, we exchange death for eternal life. That's what we buy. Monday's lesson, uh, we're going to look at Isaiah 55, 7 through 13. And it starts out in verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Pause. What's the difference between wicked or evil and sinful? What's the difference between wicked and evil versus being sinful? Do you hear those syn as synonyms? They're all the same because they're not. Sinful is the condition. Yes. It's our choices. Sinful is the condition with which we're born, born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Born with a condition we didn't choose. Born filled with fear, temptations of selfishness. This is the sin condition, the me first drive, the carnal nature that tempts us. That's sinful. That's not what the... Let the wicked forsake, the evil man put away his thoughts. Wicked and evil is different. These are not just having the conditions, but then choosing to embrace the selfish, the sinful, to embrace it and to practice the methods of sinfulness or selfishness, pursuing to advance self at the expense of others, a willful violation of God's design laws for life. In other words, at its root, evil and wickedness is exploiting and taking advantage of other people. It's violations of love. That's what wickedness and evil is, exploiting and taking advantage of others. We 
Sinners are to forsake the me-first methods of the world and pursue God's methods of truth and love. And one of Satan's biggest deceits in the world, folks, it's happening right now if you can't see it, but pray for, pray for that discernment. Put on your, your, your eye salve of the Spirit. One of the biggest deceits where he gets people to embrace and practice evil, they wouldn't do it on their own. I can't do that. Is through human governments. Getting your representatives to pass laws that make it legal for you to exploit and take advantage of another. Understand, under the pursuit of justice, under the pursuit of doing what's right, it's legal now, folks. Now, we can look back in history and we can see that Corban, if you're familiar with your New Testament, was a law that they passed where they didn't have to honor their mothers and fathers. They could use all their resources for self as long as when they died, it went to the, went to the temple. They passed their law. Jesus condemned it. But it was legal. They could feel good, righteous. I'm helping the church. We look at the Dark Ages and all the laws that people passed while they burned people at the stake or went on the Crusades. But they felt good because they were upholding the law or the, the laws of Jim Crow or the laws of slavery. Or we, we can look back on that with great discernment and we can say, oh yeah, that was evil. That's evil. That's evil. Oh, evil, evil, evil. Can you see the evil of the same method being applied in the laws in our country today? Just different laws, same process, where you're willing to hurt somebody else to advance yourself. I won't, I won't, I, I'm capable, I'm capable, completely capable. But I won't get a job, instead I'll get my elected officials into office and I will pass laws to tax people and give me a basic universal income so I never have to work. Notice I didn't say anything about dis Disabled. These are the capable. It's corrupt. It's exploiting. It's selfish. But it's legal. I could go on all day. So many, so many of these types. Continue on with the quote. Let him, let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him, to our God, and he will freely pardon. There it is, right there, in Scripture, in Isaiah. Do you understand that essentially every Christian denomination denies this? Our quarterly just denied this. Next week's lesson, I've already looked ahead, we'll deny this. While it's true that our salvation cost God, as I just explained, what was necessary to free us from sin cost God a lot to provide it to us. That is not the same thing as a legal pardon or God's granting personal forgiveness. They will teach that God couldn't forgive. The law required. You couldn't be pardoned. You're under legal condemnation. It's all a lie. And that Jesus had to pay the penalty so that God could legally be able to forgive us or pardon us. But the text says that God freely forgives. And then right after the text says that God freely forgives, notice the very next words that Isaiah wants you as an enlightened spirit-led person to understand. After I freely forgive, next words, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. You see, human governments don't forgive. Justice in a human government is not forgiving. It's punishing. 
Always punishing. Always punishing. That's how you get justice in the human system. You must punish appropriately. Because human laws are just made up. And if you don't punish, there's no accountability. It's when you relieve yourself of that entire Satan's worldview and enter into the worshiping the Creator that you understand God never has to punish. He only has to heal. He heals and fixes the damage. Lest if he does nothing, we die of a terminal condition. Yes? Like it said in the power of love course, every sin must meet its punishment. Urged Satan. Yeah, that's a quote from Desire of Ages 761. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are than your thoughts. How much higher is heaven than earth? Infinite. That's exactly right. Yet how much of Christianity teaches God's government functions just like a human legal system? If you think it's bad in this lesson, wait till next week. Next week, you're gonna, if you read ahead, you're going to be wanting to vomit as you read next week's lesson. Yes, uh, you say, you laugh as if, uh, uh, go, uh, Revelation chapter 3, the message to the Laodiceans. Jesus uses the very word. The Greek word there is emeo, from where we get emesis or emetic. It means to vomit. It means it makes me sick. I want to puke. Why? Because they teach this garbage about God. They have all this religion that makes them feel rich and, and, and clothed and everything. Because why? Because they're covered by a legal robe that, that adjusts the record books and all this legal mechanics, but it has no power to change hearts. And it's sickening. As the heavens are higher than the, than, as the heavens are higher than the earth, my ways are higher than your ways. As the, and notice what he says, the illustration, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, what kind of law is being described here? These are design laws. This is the law of nature. This is the law of watering. This law of sowing and reaping. These are design laws. This is how reality works. You don't get grapes from planting mustard seeds. It's not how reality works. The circle of, wa of the water cycle that just keeps cycling around, the law of love built into nature. So my word goes out from my mouth. It does not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I send it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, uh, instead of the thorn bush will grow the pine. And instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This, is, this will be the Lord's renown for an everlasting sign, which will not be destroyed. What's being described? Recreation, getting rid of the thorns, getting rid of the, the briars, getting rid of the painful, sinful infection to God's creation, restoring it back to his original design. That's what's being described. In the lesson, the last two paragraphs, let's see. In Monday's lesson, last two paragraphs in Monday's lesson, uh, it's a quote from My Life Today, page 360. It says, The theme of redemption is one that angels desire to look into. It will be the science and song of the redeemed through the ceaseless ages of eternity. Is it not worth worthy of careful thought and study now? The subject is inexhaustible. The study of the incarnation of Christ, his atoning sacrifice and mediatorial work will employ the mind of diligent student as long as time shall last. And looking to heaven with the unnumbered years, he will exclaim, great is the mystery of godliness. 
What do you think of this phrase, the science and the song of the redeemed? The theme of redemption is the science and the song. Well, what is science? Reality. I like what you said, reality. That's exactly right. Any other words? Uh, Reproduced experiments that always come out the same way. Reproducible experiments that always come out the same way. Reproducible, testable, evidence-based. Absolutely right. That's what science is. And the plan of salvation is based on reality, on design laws, something that is testable and which results come out the same every time the principles are applied. Every time. Pardon? Otherwise known as a law. All otherwise known as a law. That's right. Salvation is scientific and will employ our intellectual study for all eternity. For all eternity. And it is scientific because it's the outworking of the laws upon which God built reality to operate, the, the laws of, of all living beings. The imposed law lie obscures reality and makes salvation mystical magical, superstitious nonsense. You know, things like, oh, you must have a ritual baptism done in a certain way or in a certain place or by a certain person who has a certain right documents by the certain uh, organizational system in order for you to be actually saved because if you didn't get it by the right person in the right way at the right place at the right time, then you can't be saved. On the right day. Ritualistic superstition. Or you must have your body circumcised, as Paul was dealing with in Galatians. Or you must attend church services on the right day of the week. Or you must eat or not eat of certain foods or wash your hands in certain ways. Or you must believe that God loves you, but if, he, if you don't love him back, then he'll torture you in hell. Unless you claim the blood of Jesus to pay him off, so he won't torture you in hell. Superstitious, magical nonsense. And thinking people reject it because it's not how reality works. We have so much a better message, the message of the three angels, the message of the end time, to worship our creator whose laws and laws reality are built upon that integrate perfectly science, life experiences, and scripture, and all the pieces fit, and it makes sense. That's the science of salvation. This class tends to tip more frequently into the science of salvation than the song of salvation. Because we want people to reason. We want to see people to understand evidences. We want people to see the truth, how, how reality works. But the song, what is a song? Song is something that moves us. It's emotional. It stirs the heart strength. It's an expression of passion and love. And while what God has done through Christ to save us is based on the solid design laws and construction protocols that he built into reality, so it's scientific. It is yet still the most profound demonstration of love that moves the soul, stirs the heart, uplifts the spirit with the deepest appreciation and the most moving song. And that's where we will sing a song of Moses and the Lamb. And music also follows a predictable... Science. Uh, That's true. A mathematical um, structure to music. So the, the two inter. inter That's true. Uh, seamlessly. That's true. Yeah, there is, there is that. Thus, our science and our song represents our entire being, our intellectual brain and our emotional brain, total and complete, and also the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, the spirit of science, and the spirit of love, the spirit of song. Spirit of truth and love. We see the whole thing, always harmony. 
Now, what about this phrase, the atoning sacrifice mean? When you hear that phrase, the atoning sacrifice, what law lens are you hearing it through? Legal, she says. So when you hear atoning sacrifice through the imposed human law lens, what, what does atoning sacrifice mean through that law lens? That's the payment, the legal price. God's wrath being assuaged, the blood payment being presented, sacrifice going to the Father, Father, my blood, my blood. But when you have design law, what's atoning sacrifice? What's atoning mean? Unifying. At-oneing, bringing things that are not one back into oneness, uniting all things under one head. The sacrifice necessary to take that which had been fractured off and restoring it back to oneness with God. Atoning. What about the mediatorial work? When you hear mediatorial work, what law lens do you hear that phrase through? Common phrase. Yes. Yeah, one minute. Add the sacrifice to that. Yes. Is it atoning sacrifice? Yes. I want you to explain. Yes. The, add one minute. Yes. And then the word sacrifice is what I'm asking you. Yes. Was there a sacrifice that we just talked about, a high price that Christ paid to reveal truth and to develop a human, perfect human uh, uh, character and nature to cleanse this human? Did, did, was there a sacrifice there that was necessary to achieve those outcomes? And that was necessary to take us who were broken off in sin and restore us back into unity. So the sacrifice was what Christ had to achieve in order to fix what was broken. Atoning sacrifice. What about mediatorial work? What law lens? What law lens? Human law. When we think of human law, courtroom scenes, what's the mediator, the advocate? What, what's, what's the job there? To plead your case to the judge. Mercy, mercy, mercy. The judge's job is to uphold the law. No mercy, no mercy. This is, a, this is the human law system. And this is, if you th- and you, do you understand how deeply infected Christianity is with this lie? But what's the truth under design law? Mediator is the, is the go-between. The go-between is the word for mediator, an advocate, a bridge builder, a ladder, a connecting link, a conduit. One who leaves one party and reaches out to another party to bring them an ombudsman. You like that word? Yes. It's like going to a mediator who helps to reconcile the differences between uh, Exactly. Mediator reconciles the differences. Now, when Adam sinned, did God get changed? No. Did God's law get changed? Did the condition of humankind get changed? So where will the mediator have to do the mediatorial work if, in fact, God never changed, God's law never changed, humankind was changed, and the mediator is going to bring us back to oneness or unity or reconciliation? Where does the work have to be done? With God, with God's law, or with humankind? And that's not what Christianity teaches. Christianity teaches our mediators in heaven presenting his sacrifice to the Father to pay the debt to the Father so the legal registry can be changed. That was never the problem. The problem has always been our hearts and minds. So if you go back to Scripture and you let the Scripture enlighten your mind to the meaning, what are all the metaphors of Scripture teach? I will take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. In you, God, because you're a stone-hearted God. No, in us. I will circumcise the heart with the Holy Spirit. I will be reborn, 
recreated. The old will die. The new will come. I'll write my law in God's heart. No, on your heart and mind. All the metaphors of Scripture are trying to teach the reality that the mediatorial work is done in the sinner, in the heart and mind. And even the object lesson in the Old Testament, the, the lampstand, symbolically, single pole of gold, center rod of gold represents Christ with six branches. Six represents humanity made on day six. The six branches represent the humankind connected to Christ, filled with the, the oil of the Holy Spirit. We then become lights to the world. Okay? Understanding those, th- th- that's what it represents. Christ, the light of the world, we become lights to the world as we're connected to him. But now here's the lesson, where Christ does his work. Those lamps got trimmed every morning and every evening by one person only, ever, the high priest. The daily priest could not trim those lamps. Only the high priest trimmed those lamps. And those lamps were where the light is, is symbolically burning, what do you think that represents? It's your heart and mind. The high priest, the intercessors, interceding in the hearts and minds of you. Cut away, circumcising, cut away the stuff of this world so we can burn more brightly for him. That's his mediatorial work. They all teach the same thing, and it's all been obscured by this penal legal lie. We have to get out of this imposed law system. Back to worshiping the Creator, which is the three angels' messages. Oh boy. Okay, now we're going to go to Tuesday's lesson. Isaiah 58 and we will uh we'll uh read read starting verse 1. Shout shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. The lesson points out that this passage is playing off of the theme of the day of atonement where they would 10 days before the day of atonement blow the trumpets to announce the day is coming. And so raise your voice like a trumpet. And this is playing off of this symbolic lesson of the, of the, of the day, of, of day of Atonement. And when the trumpet would blow to call the people to prepare for the Day of Atonement, what's it calling them to do? What's this voice calling the people to do in this text? Declare to my people their rebellion and the house of Jacob their sins. So what's the calling? What's the day of atonement? What is, what is the, the reality to the symbols? Is, is the calling of this voice, is the prophet uh, Isaiah calling the people to a ritual that happens every 12 months? Is that what he's calling to? A ritual enactment of the day of atonement to cleanse a building on earth. Is that what he's calling them to? Is this calling for a people at the end of time to... Uh, uh, to identify in their mind an acknowledgement and awareness of a cleansing of a building in heaven. This is that what this is about? We're cleansing buildings in heaven. Oh, we're cleansing record books in heaven. In the building in heaven. And once we clean the books in the building, then the building is metaphorically clean too. So we're cleaning the, bu- bu- the, the building by cleaning the books. Is that what this is calling to? I didn't see as many heads shaking no once I said that. But the answer is no. It's not legal accounting. It's not erasure of history. I can't tell you how corrupt some of this stuff is taught. Do you know there are people who, who have come up to us and, and confronted us in somewhat less than friendly ways? <laughs> so, 
charitable way to put it. <laughs> who, who teach that, that their entire security and safety and eternal hereafter is that God is in heaven, Jesus is in heaven, erasing the record of their sins. So when they get to heaven, no one will ever know the sins they committed. History is being erased. We're all going to have amnesia. We get to heaven, we're going to, no Bibles in heaven. No Bibles in heaven. David and Bathsheba, no, no knowledge of that. Solomon comes walking along and says, hey, mom, and I don't know who you are. I mean, you're a product of a, 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 of a bad, bad, uh, bad relationship that should have never formed. Can't know you in heaven. You see how completely silly this whole imperial law system becomes? This way it becomes superstitious, magical, mystical, nonsense. And what's the result of continuing to believe down that line? What happens to your mind? You dethrone reason. You can't think. You have to believe without evidence. Then what do you believe if, they, if, you, if you can't discern? You haven't matured. You haven't grown up to discern right from wrong. You don't see how it works. You just have to believe. Then what do you believe? You believe authority. Well, what authority do you believe? And then you, just, you notice this is what's happening in the world. People are deciding who their authority is. I'll believe the Bible. The Bible said it. I believe it. That settles it. I won't understand what it means. I just find a, a, a text. If I find a text that says it, I can believe it. Think about all the contradictions. 40, over 40,000 Christian groups arguing back and forth about what, what the Bible teaches because they all have their proof text to prove that they're right. Well, I, no, it won't be. It won't be the, it'll be the authority of the, of the speaking in tongues. The Spirit moves on me, that's my authority. And if the Spirit moves on me and I got that impression and I got the, I got the word through the, through the Spirit in tongues, then, then that's my authority. I'm going to believe that. Or the authority is the authority of the land, of the government. I'm going to trust in my political leaders. Oh, if you, if you don't think that's happening in the world right now, then you aren't living in the same country I'm living in. People are trusting. Oh, I'm going to trust the new prophets of the new age. The prophets of the, 20, of the 21st century? Scientists. The scientists. We're going to follow the science. We're going to follow the we, we and our party, we're going to follow the science. We're going to do what science say. And remember, the scientists are the ones who said there's no God. That we just all evolved out of slime. But we're going to follow what they say. How many Christians think that sounds so righteous? We're going to follow the scientists. When the scientists have dethroned their reason and have to deny evidence that refutes their pet little theories... Because they can't integrate God's design laws into actual scientific evidence. Verse 2. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. What's described here in this passage? What does this, this little two-word phrase mean? As if. What does as if mean? That it really is that way? Uh, that's not what it appears to be, folks. Notice he says, they, they, for day after day they seek me out as if they were a nation that does what is right. As if 
they were a nation that does what is right. Are they doing what's right? God's making a point that what they profess to be doing is not what they're actually doing. They profess to be seeking God, but what are they really seeking? Self, self-advancement, power over others. How is it possible for them to think that they're pursuing God and wanting him involved when they're actually seeking themselves? How is that possible? How could they do that? Because they've exchanged design law for rules in Poe's law. That's why. Notice they want just decisions. They want a ruling authority. Make a rule. Referee. Umpire. Teacher. Pastor. Pope. Somebody give me a ruling. Supreme Court Justice. Verse 3. We have fasted, they say, and you have not seen it. Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Notice the point. God exposes that they do religious rituals for credit. We're doing this. And you don't notice. Can't you see? We go to church on the right day. Our TV is off by sunset. We've been vegans for 43 years. <laughs> Wine has never touched these lips. Well, I did have some pomegranate juice that soured in the fridge once. I, 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 you know, I mean, it, was, it went bad. It was like months old. I think there might have been a little alcohol. Will you forgive me for that one, Lord? I'm doing all this. Don't I get a gold star next to my name in the books of heaven? But they're not getting credit. And they're getting mad. They're not getting credit. Why are they not getting credit? Because all this stuff done to somehow show their righteousness, keeping the rules, doing the checklist, all the things they're told by the authority of whatever their you know, church leadership says they need to do, because they haven't understood reality. They've joined an organization. The organization gave them their 28 fundamentals they have to memorize and uh, adhere to. But what does he say to them? You do as you please, not, a, not as I please. And you exploit. What is the definition of evil? Exploiting others. They live the worldly sinful lives under the umbrella of representing God. This makes him sick, folks. It's nauseating. You go out claiming that you're my people, representing me, my kingdom, while you practice the principles of the world and are just as evil and hard as the worldly, ungodly people. But you do it under this guise of legal religion that makes you feel that you've got it all accounted for and taken care of. You go to confession once a week to your priest and you go out and you do your Hail Marys or your Our Fathers or you just claim Jesus' blood in your book in heaven to make mechanistic uh, accounting in the record books while you continue to live your... And, and, and we all know you have to do it because, you, you know, your church tells you. You can't be righteous. You're going to sin right till the day Jesus comes. You just have to get uh, legal, legal payment made for them. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. How much of Christianity is just like this? Divided, arguing backbiting, sniping, and I don't mean denominationally, within the denomination, within any denomination. How many local church groups, church so-called families, are split? I, in every church I ever went to, from my littlest all the way up, 
there was always little factions in the little groups fighting each other, gossiping, sniping, picking, arguing, always. I could, I'm looking at my mom, the church that I grew up in, 120 member church, lovely church, but there was always the fighting, always. Has anybody had a church that didn't have it? You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen, only a, a day for a man to humble himself? It is, is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sack, sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, an acceptable, an accept, a day acceptable to the Lord? What is God calling out? What's he calling them out about? Ritual. Ritual without heart change. Ritual without heart change. Ritual that he instituted. Rituals that he instituted. Go back and read Isaiah 1. Boy, he gave a whole long list of them, including Sabbath days. But the kind of fast that I've chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords, uh, the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to break every yoke, is, is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor and wander with shelter, uh, when, when you see the naked, to clothe him? Understand, it was mind-boggling to me this last year. As I confronted some of this stuff, that I would get emails from people across our country that think, and they would quote passages like this, and they would say things like this. Is this not the kind of fast that I've chosen, that you get a hold of the right government, uh, levers of government, pass the right laws so that you can fo- uh, feed the hungry and that you can then uh, tax people so that you can take from them and make sure that other people have shelter, that we need to use the human governments to make sure justice happens by... This is what they think it says. That we get justice in society by supporting the right political parties who will advance the right moral agendas to make government programs that will feed the hungry and provide housing for the homeless. I'm not suggesting there's anything wrong with a benevolent government that wants to do that. Some of you think I just was running down certain programs. I wasn't. I was running down the idea that that's what God is calling people to do. Achieve his ends through human governments. He's not. He is calling you to love each other. Calling us to love our neighbors. Calling us to act as his instruments, to be his hands and his feet, to go out and help others. That's what he's calling us to do, to have justice in our hearts, not justice in books. It says, then your light will break forth like the dawn. What kind of light will break forth? Well, we could spend a whole bunch on that. I won't. Um, It says, your righteousness will go forth before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. What is the, what is the, what is, we're going to close on this. We won't even get into the whole Sabbath issue, which I had a whole nother 10 pages on. But the glory, the glory of the Lord. What's the three angels' message, the third angel's message calling us to do at this time in history? Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his tribunal is sitting and punishment is being meted out. No. Fear God, be in awe of him, admire him. And glorify him, reveal his character in the way you conduct business because the time in human history has come for people to make a right judgment about God. His ju- to stop seeing God as this imperial dictator of the dark ages who says, love me or I'll torture you in hell and start seeing him as the one who made the heavens, the earth, the sea and all of them in this and his laws are those laws that reality are built upon. 
We are to live the law of love, design, real, design law reality, and be those lights to draw people back to a God, and then his glory will be our rear, rear guard. That's what this is referring to. Cleansing of our spirit temples from all the infections and corruptions of this worldly systems. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love, for your, for your goodness, for all that you've achieved in Christ. And, and we pray that your Holy Spirit will take the truth that Christ revealed, the victories that he's achieved, reproduce it in us and enable us to be cut away from the distortions of this world, the methods of this world, the motives of this world, the practices of this world, and be in the world, but not of it, to shine a light into this darkness that you will come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.